I think over over a century we we built this way for a reason, <clears throat> um, and there were smart reasons that were tied to the economics. And now I think it's trying to figure out what are those economics, just like you said, Brandon, what are those economics today, and how do we actually move and pull ourselves backward or or mitigate? Um, I think those are really difficult questions um, that we're we're trying to answer. Uh, so I, I just wanted to add that add that piece in there that we were making smart decisions based on the best information we have now. Now we have to acknowledge we have a lot better information. We have a lot of great science. Um, and now we need our policies to just match that science or at least think about it and incorporate it. Hey everyone, this is Brandon. Uh, it has certainly been a while since we last dropped an episode and major apologies for that. September was really a crazy month for a lot of us. Uh, some folks had a ton of work, some were away, uh, so things got delayed, but we are happy and excited to get back on the horse here, especially with all that's going on in the world. Um, the episode you are about to listen to here was recorded on August 15th. So there might be a few minor things that are slightly outdated, but the overall conversation is certainly evergreen as we are talking about the effects of climate change and some of the more micro impacts and considerations that communities and local governments will have to make that can often get lost in many of the larger conversations that take place around this really uh, significant and important issue. Um, you know, we were fortunate to be joined by Travis Miles, who you just heard in the open there. He is a professor and oceanographer who works at Rutgers University. He is also Katie's lovely husband, so we all know each other uh, quite well, and we were really happy to get to chat with him about this uh, on on the podcast. So uh, thanks again for listening. You know, uh, quick note, we, is we have a new Twitter page, at uh, WHP Podcast, and we are now on Apple and everything, so please give us a five-star review, as that will greatly help our reach. Um, but we really appreciate all your support and now that that plug is out the way let's get to the episode cue the transition music so i guess you know just to start you know travis could you describe some of the sort of major concerns you know as as you're watching kyle and other storms you know come come uh, developing uh, over time here and as you're thinking forward into the future about what we're facing, like what are the big issues uh, that we should be considering, especially when it comes to storms and flooding and all the threats that that has uh, for communities and governments? Yeah, um, so just to start off thinking about uh, politics uh, and climate change, I think it's it's an interesting issue. Uh, sci scientists don't tend to wanna get into politics or historically have not. And I think climate change is one of those things that has really pulled um, pulled scientists into the climate sphere. Um, it, you know, talking about believing climate change or not believing climate change being a political thing, um, it's very we don't we don't think about it that way as scientists, right? There's data and there's there's results and there's papers that we write and and you know we we see that. And so uh, it's been a journey, I think, uh, for most scientists of 
trying to enter into the political world to talk about these things and, and have some certainty on it. Um, even if we mitigated greenhouse gases today, if we stopped the driver of climate change today or um, basically stopped the earth from warming today, we would still have an additional foot of sea level rise over the next 100 years. So that's, that's what we've already done if we stop today. So that's kind of the best case scenario. The worst case scenario um, is almost eight feet by the end of, by 2100. Um, so we're already gonna have to deal with the one foot um, and there's potential for it to be much, much worse. And in specific locations, it may be much, much worse even under the low scenario. Um, this is sort of bumps up against the fact that we have 40% of our population in, in the U.S. in coastal communities. Um, so a few reasons for this. There's kind of three main things that I think about, but, the, you know, climate, uh, sea level rise expert. Um, we'll talk about a few more in a more detail, but basically you have glaciers melting. That's the big one. Land-based glaciers melting. Um, I woke up this morning and saw a news article that the Greenland ice sheet is basically um, destabilized beyond repair. So that's really scary. Um, that's one study. I'm, I'm sure there are more people that will weigh in on that over the years. Um, the other piece is thermal expansion. So the actual water, when it heats up, expands. So those are kind of your two biggest features that cause sea level rise uh, because of climate change. Like an ice cube tray. Yeah, like an ice cube tray. There we go. Like <laughs> Katie and I talk. Yeah, it feels like a, like a conversation that happened in the kitchen. Say, I have to like practice being a translator. <laughs> yeah. Katie and I translate. I, I've learned a lot about housing over the last 10 there years. So. <laughs> Travis, um, and can, I, can I ask you a ahead. specific question before we go any further on this? Like, I want to try to make this tangible um, mm -hmm. for for somebody like me who doesn't I'm not an oceanographer. I mean, um, one foot, right? What does that mean to my yeah. to my life? Yeah. Assuming I am a person who lives along the coastline first, and then as a second piece, I don't. I'd be curious also what you can help us understand about. I live in in Chicago, and how the what's the cumulative effect for me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one foot is the is the mean, right? But on top of that, we have uh, tides and we have storms. So that's kind of where, where I'm getting to a little bit is one foot is the mean. Um, if you go in your basement or if you have a basement like many people in New Jersey do, uh, one foot might put your boiler underwater. It might, it might put all of, your, all of your utilities in your basement underwater. It might, it might make it so you can't get into your house just mm -hmm. if you raised everything by one foot. Even, even if you aren't affected by that one foot, when a storm comes through, it can add you know, six inches. It can add another foot for that event. So basically, um, storms can have a, a greater impact than they normally would with this sea level rise scenario. Um, so like a other... regular a way that I've heard you describe it is that it's not that there's these huge, sandy, Harvey, big storms, which is, which is a whole other problem, but it's like every nor'easter is more like those hundred year floods. And it's like every little storm that we get floods more. 
Well, even yeah. just was a, a week ago, maybe, maybe uh-huh. two weeks ago. Like we had a, a hard rain. It like rained hard for like nine minutes, 10 minutes. And Jersey <laughs> City, it. Hoboken, Elizabeth, it was, it was, you got canals in the streets. You had people like, you know, in kayaks in the streets, basically. And it's like, okay, if, if, uh, if this can happen after a 10 minute hard rain, Oh my gosh! What are we? What are we doing? And so, what are we going to be doing with soon? So what I hear, what I hear is sort of a couple of things. Number one is I hear this: there are there are people who live along the coastline who are necessarily going to have the waters encroach on their property, pushing things back. Lots of lost investments, uh, potential displacement of people. Right? Like there's there's real issues there. And then on this other side is the severity of storms and then the system by which we've created to sort of uh, manage the impact, the the drainage, the sewer, those types of things get overwhelmed. So then you have like incredibly inconvenient uh, and financially destructive storms more frequently that also can impact my property values, the tax structure, the local economy, et cetera. Yeah, no, exactly. I think I think there's a couple pieces to consider here. So you may you may raise one foot, but raising one foot can mean miles of inland flooding, right? Based on the slope of your particular area, like the country of Bangladesh, right? You can go hundreds of hundreds of miles inland, and it's still only one foot um, of elevation that you gain. So you may go up a little bit, but you can really impact inland areas um, in some places, uh, the Gulf Coast and. Um, Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama and places like that. So that's that's definitely one one additional piece. Um, and yeah, we're going to get nickeled and dimed on this issue, right? It's not necessarily the Sandies that are going to be the big problem. It's going to be rain events um, having more significant impacts. It's going to be those smaller storms that come in on a recurring basis. It's going to be High tide flooding, it's not even a storm. It's just every high tide, places that never flooded before are going to flood. That's happening on the Jersey Shore right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all of these little pieces that are going to chip away um, at the finances. You know, it's not its not the one super storm from climate change is going to come in and blow up the world like the day after tomorrow. It's not this one big thing that's going to happen. It's going to be lots of little things that, that affect our infrastructure and our, our economies. It's like a frog in a bowling pot. Right, yeah, just get slowly used to it. Since it's all three of you are from Jersey, and I'm hearing the Jersey Shore is under attack. I just want to make sure Snooky's okay. Y'all take care, Snooky. Snooky's in the bunker, under yeah. underground. <laughs> she is she is protected at all costs. So I, I think one of the the things that and there was um I gotta find it. There was an article that Travis you had sent me. I want to say a couple of months ago, but time is irrelevant, so I have no uh-huh. idea. But basically sort of tying the the threats of storms and flooding to the system of taxation and so, you know I think it was a, it was a it was a it was a news story that was important because a lot of folks just they don't really tie together these things in, in sort of just normal conception of climate change uh, challenges but it was making the point that you know as flooding becomes a bigger and bigger problem, you know, say for the Jersey Shore or say for Miami or wherever is along the coast that is, you know, an important uh, part of a state's economy, you know, because of tourism and other things. Uh, it's going to be hard for people to move to those communities 
because banks are going to start taking into account the frequency of flooding going on. Mm-hmm. And they're going to either stop offering mortgages for those communities or the cost of those mortgages is going to be so insane that nobody's going to be able to move there. And so then you're going to have a crisis of, you know, sort of uh, just just depopulation in those areas, either from people not being able to move there f- from a finance, you know, cost perspective or people being kicked out because of flooding and then them just, you know, naturally migrating away. And I you know that this, this, this story was specific to the Jersey Shore, but it was saying, you know, imagine that every shore town has has this happen. For a state like New Jersey that funds a lot of you know critical services and programs through the property tax, you're going to have just a huge drop in property tax revenue because nobody's going to be living, not, not as many people are going to be living in these shore towns. And that's going to just have a domino effect on everything else. And like we need to invest in, you know, mitigation and sort of trying to, to trying to deal with this problem at a large scale. And that's going to make it even harder to do so. So, you know, I guess you know, Katie, when so all the all the planning stuff that we've talked about, you know, over the past decade, like, you know, how how you think about this when it comes to housing, but mm-hmm. how do you think about it when it comes to just anything about how how you plan a community and how you plan ahead and how you take into account the challenges in the future? Absolutely. So to both your point about migration and Travis's about the money, I so much on this. I think first it starts with the inequities and then it goes into the the money, the economic impact and what that does. So climate's all about money. And here in the US up till now, we really like to fight nature. You know, after Sandy, what did we say in New Jersey? Stronger than the storm. And the Stafford Act is set up to restore places to pre-disaster conditions. And I'll get into that in a, in a little later, I think. But, you know, when those when those disasters are weather related, we could we could be building for future preparedness and not bringing them back to the way they used to be. It doesn't have to be this way. But you said, you know, okay, migration and property tax issues. There's going to be enormous wealth inequities as there already is. Migration is who can afford to leave, but also who can afford to stay and who can't afford to leave and who will be there anyway. So, for example, you build it back that's an expense, an adaptation like raising a house. But you also have things like luxury buildings in Miami that are raised and have have flood protections. And that one luxury building is then also impacting the entire neighborhood around it. You know, And when we talk about building flood walls and things like that, wherever the hole is in that wall eventually is where all the water comes rushing in and what community is is that. So wealth inequity plays out spatially, demographically. There's huge unequal impacts of climate change and inequitable outcomes. And the role of planners and policymakers in addressing that inequity has to be through collective action, um, things that are very controversial, whether it's something simple like dunes or much bigger, like strategic retreat. But I think it, it comes down to with with the property taxes and all of that. It comes down to who pays for the risk. So if you'll if you'll bear with me for a second, let's talk about FEMA. So FEMA has a well documented history of over responding to small disasters and under uh, where it underestimates the state's ability to handle it, and then way way under supporting large disasters like Harvey and Maria. You know, for example, when Harvey hit, um, more than half FEMA staff were tied up on relatively small disasters. And that was the wettest hurricane in US history. You know, 
FEMA was helping two rural counties in New Hampshire with a March 2017 snowstorm that was one $2 million damage in infrastructure, where the state had a $190 million budget surplus. Oklahoma, they were responding to storms that, that struck in May with $5 million in damage, and they had a $452 million surplus. West Virginia, you know, they... <laughs> and then meanwhile, Puerto Rico, it takes a month <laughs> to get anything stood up. It was the Stafford Act was not intended for this, and but that's what's been happening. Um, you know, Mike DeWine and in Ohio, they signed in a tax cut and a three billion dollar surplus right after getting some FEMA money. And so states get addicted to this and they don't plan. Then they don't have the reserves for it, they don't have the disaster plans, and they don't have the capacity for to build disaster teams when they need it. And part of it too is that they put in for these big they, these big numbers because otherwise they won't qualify for FEMA aid. Like Colorado put in for almost $30 million and it turns out the actual cost was $200,000. And FEMA's been doing this since basically 1986 and they haven't changed their approach to the way they do the money, which also ties into the National Flood Insurance Program, which is very weird that the that with so few nationalized things in the US, what we have is this nationalized flood insurance. And why do I think that that's the case? Well, because it protects property owners. What a, what a shock. Um, and unlike, say, Medicaid or Medicare, it doesn't contain really any incentives to be value-based or to to do and plan things better. So we have the National Flood Insurance Program, which is welfare for the wealthy. And it's so flawed that every year it gets closer to insolvency. It's got bailouts and still loses a billion and a half dollars a year. It owes $20 billion. It'll never pay back. And why? All of this gets to kind of what you said about property taxes, Brendan, and the cost of a house. They don't make homeowners pay premiums that adequately reflect the risk. And this underpricing encourages development in flood-prone areas. And if they overprice, then people don't purchase coverage at all. And now we're back to talking about FEMA and kind of helping people out once they don't have any protections. So, you know, 60 to 99% of Americans affected by recent disasters didn't have flood insurance at all. And while recently they've updated the methodology a little bit, the, we we don't know quite how it'll work yet, but this goes kind of all the way back to what Travis was saying about how a lot of this has been built on what's happened in the past and not forward looking of, okay, what does it mean for things like rain and building codes and not just the mega hundred year storms? Take this and tie it all up in the mortgages themselves and the property taxes and the way that lending institutions are starting to calculate that risk. So if they give you a 30-year mortgage, they want to know that their asset is going to be there in 30 years and that you'll be able to recoup the, the value. And if you can't, or you'll never be able to sell it to somebody else, there will be a cliff there will be the cliff with, sure, property taxes, property values, maybe people leave, but then also none of those people will be able to sell their homes. That was a whirling dervish <laughs> of a description <laughs> of a very comprehensive problem, and I applaud you for doing that. Oh I feel God. strongly about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Travis, I want I want to give you a second to respond, but I, I appreciate what you said, Katie, about like nobody being able to buy because um, there's just I got to point it out before we get too far into this because it would be a travesty if we didn't. There's a great clip of uh, Ben Shapiro sort of saying like, "Okay, let's assume a foot flooding. Let's assume ten feet. Who knows? You don't think those people are just gonna sell their homes?" And then there's a guy who made a YouTube video being like, "One problem." Sell their homes to who? Aquaman? There's nobody that's going to buy a house <laughs> in a flooded zone like that. So, yes, this is a problem that cannot be fixed just by, you know, natural, quote unquote, market, uh, you know, rules and metrics. But, uh, Travis, p- please respond to everything that your lovely wife said. About. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the bottom line is that our policies... Uh, whether it's flood insurance, whether it's housing, whether it's taxes, all of these things were not designed with the idea of a changing climate in mind. We, we, right. you know, the science um, has really come a very long way in the last 20 years. But Katie mentioned policies from 1986, you know, uh, laws, laws 30, 40 years old. And I think we're, start, we're starting to see storms that we've never seen before. The tropics are essentially expanding. So we're getting more storms uh, further north, especially in the Pacific. There's some, some studies that have showed that. Um, and storms are breaking records, like you said, as far as how big they are, how intense they are, but also the precipitation with Harvey, with Matthew, with Florence, all of these different storms are things that we've never seen before. And our policies were not designed to deal with them. Um, I think that's the bottom line of kind of everything that she went through in detail is we've built these systems uh, without really climate in mind. I think the insurance companies um, and some of the, you know, the real estate, the lenders, I think those people are catching on, right? We have the tools to study these things. It's not a mystery. We can, we have the tools to actually study block by block what street is going to flood and what street is not going to flood. So this isn't like an entire city is going to be eviscerated. It's going to be like block by block who loses and who wins. Um, so, I mean, like considering just how like massive this is, you would think obviously this prevents, this presents a national security concern for our health and our wealth and our ability to do what we got to do going to the future. Like Oren, you know, you've, you've done some work on, you know, national security issues and thinking about climate, like, when you hear all this, what does it, what does it bring to mind? Ooh, uh, I'm <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure there's a reason that the uh, Pentagon wrote a report describing climate change as the number one threat to national security, and the reason is not um, overly scientific. It's very much a you know about human behavior, and it's just about mass levels of disruption to societies. Period. Full stop. Um as places become unlivable, the people who live in those places have to move. That relocation becomes uh, very complicated, especially when it happens en masse, which, you know, Travis, you're talking about one foot in some places, but you keep reiterating that one foot is a mean and not what's happening in my area. It's not what's happening in Bangladesh necessarily as as the example you gave, right? Um, And so, um, you know that poses that poses massive challenges to the stabilities of any government and when any government anywhere in the world becomes unstable 
that poses national security challenges to most governments in the region, which then expands its way out. And especially when you're a country like ours, um, for better or for worse, which is a, uh, a hegemon, you, your, your, your two choices are essentially just let stuff play out or try to get involved. And more often than not, the hegemons try to get involved. So what that's going to mean for us is expanded, uh, expanded spending outside of this country uh, on uh, the stability of other countries which is only going to lead to more frustration inside of our country. And that has nothing to do with the question of whether or not you're going to see a bunch of people over time moving towards the border to try and find mm-hmm. refuge. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the easy ways that I like to talk about uh, talk about foreign policy and national security is, is this. If you control your own energy, you control your own food, you control your own water, you're about 75% to security. The next 75% or the next 25%, excuse me, is a combination of your of your defense capacity. Your defense capacity is both the scale and scope of your military, as well as the reality of your geography vis-a-vis alternative power structures. What is unique about America in the history of sort of global power is America is the first global power to be geographically isolated and protected on two sides by massive bodies of water. And it is very difficult to project your military's power over water. Obviously not impossible. We figured out ways to do it. But if you look at what we've done, it's not as if our wars overseas have been particularly uh, successful you know, since World War II. But it's very, very hard. Those are very difficult things to do. And so the two bodies of water plus a very small, peaceful population to the north um, and, you know, a a non-militarily strong neighbor to the south, you're in great shape from a defense protection. So the next question gets to your energy, your water and your food production. And so when I think about um, climate change vis-a-vis national security. And I hear sort of Travis lay out the math on this and what's already locked in and what's not locked in. You know, what I, what I see is the opportunity to not only solve or play a major role in solving the challenge Travis lined out that's sort of driving this entire conversation, but to create lots of jobs in the country and to make ourselves completely independent, should we choose to be, um, of external energy sources, which changes the, the dynamic of our foreign policy decision making, um, and a chance to be the country that could potentially export those solutions, which is only going to lead to more economic growth for our people at home. And so, you know, that's a lot of things, um, you know, and, and let me just finish with this one thing. One of the most interesting long-term questions in the impact of COVID is whether or not the cost of COVID helps people rethink the value of upfront investment into preventative measures. With a few billion dollars, we could have mitigated trillions and trillions of dollars of economic loss that COVID has created, not to mention the devastation to life 
both the quality of it as well as literal healthcare and people uh, losing their lives. And so I mentioned that specifically because the challenge on this issue is the upfront investment versus trying to deal with the back end cost. And maybe, just maybe, COVID can help shift the way people think about it and the story of COVID and the spending we could have done at the right times versus the money we lost and the impact can create a political narrative that helps to sell policies which have sort of gotten stuck uh, into in the politics. So you you really you beat me to it. And you, I know I'm a broken record on this, but I am who I am and I will remain so until the day I die. The way that we view costs and benefits is the most immature thing I could think of. And a lot of it's because, you know, there's just not enough people working on how do you do economic projections of future costs? Like it's hard to tell the future, <laughs> but still, you know, I'll, just taking New Jersey as a microcosm here, you know, when we talk about investment or spending on anything whatsoever, the response is, well, the, the, the pension and health benefits of public workers is really expensive. And until we figure that out, we can't do anything else. And it's like, if you all think that that is expensive, which the cost is great, you know, it's, it's like over $100 billion, you know, altogether over 150, really. And New Jersey has an annual budget of about 35 to 40 billion. So it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. But the cost of the pension and health benefits is a drop in the bucket compared to the damage and the impacts of flooding and storms and what we know is coming from climate change, right? And so if we can't even like figure out how to afford the, the pension and health benefit challenge right now to our books, how are we going to figure out the thing that we know is coming and is going to be way, way worse and way more harmful to every single resident in this state? And so it's not meant to dismiss the challenge of other costly items or other costly priorities, but it's meant to say that this is going to be a big one. This is going to be the biggest fight of our generation going forward. It's going to cost a ton. And our inability to like wrap our mind around numbers and say, okay, you know, that the, the investment of whatever it is, you know, whatever mitigation strategy or adaptation strategy you want to do, that investment is not even a tenth of the cost of the damage and what it's going to take to, uh, you know, address that damage after it occurs. You know, the, the cost of Sandy to the New York, New Jersey reason, uh, New York, New Jersey region was great. I want to say like $75 billion or something yeah, like that. It was six, it was yeah, 60, 70 billion dollars. Yeah, right, right. That, that, look, that, that right there is more than one year of New Jersey budget, right? And so how does it make sense to continue to put up with these storms and allow people this is going to sound terrible saying allow people to live, but like allow people to live on something that's called a barrier island. It is called the barrier island. It is meant to be a barrier to storms. People shouldn't be on that island, right? That's just how it is. But we got to like, we, we, we lack the ability to do anything about this right now for a lot of frustration, a lot of frustrating reasons that we talked about before. But one of those major reasons is because our concept of costs and benefits and cost of doing versus cost of not doing is incredibly warped. And Travis, I know you can probably speak a lot to that. Yeah, I think I think one thing I've been thinking about is that um, we, I mean, we didn't get into this situation because we're stupid. We got in this situation because we made choices that were the right choices at the time, as far as like you build close to fresh water because you want 
fresh water. You build close to a river or an inlet or something like that. Uh, you build there and you start your, your society there because you want access to shipping and goods and things like that. Or, or build on a barrier island because it's economically smart for the region to build a tourism industry. So I think over, over a century, we, we built this way for a reason. <clears throat> um, and there were smart reasons that were tied to the economics. And now I think it's trying to figure out what are those economics, just like you said, Brandon, what are those economics today? And how do we actually move and pull ourselves backward or, or mitigate? Um, I think those are really difficult questions um, that we're, we're trying to answer. Um, so I, I just wanted to add that, add that piece in there that we were making smart decisions based on the best information we have now. Now we have to acknowledge we have a lot better information. We have a lot of great science um, and now we need our policies to just match that science or at least think about it and incorporate it. Yep. I will add to the best decisions to say that sometimes it is self-interested decisions. And, it, and I don't necessarily mean that pejoratively. It is in your self-interest to be by fresh water. It is in your self-interest to be by a port. And that's that's why New Jersey is the way it is today. But I think that we can use those same things to incentivize better behavior. So if you if you do overhaul FEMA or the Stafford Act or require a different kind of flood insurance, like none of those things are are terribly hard to do. And that changes the entire calculus with say living on a barrier island, whether it's in Jersey or it's in the, you know, North Carolina Outer Banks and and what that means for year round living. And and I mean, I think that certainly planning is a big part of this as well. But there's other financial mechanisms too that we're seeing more and more of green financial sector green bonds, social responsibly, socially responsible investing. And you got to make sure those things have real documental, documentable outcomes. But mm-hmm. I do, I do think that with the right incentives, that goes hand in hand with better forward looking progressive policies. So Warren, you know, a lot of this conversation has been about coast stuff, but like obviously and you, you just demonstrated it with like this very, you know, shrewd take on national security connections to climate change. But like for like for the Midwest, Chicago's the Midwest. Montana is not. I learned the other day, but Chicago is. Um, how, like how how do folks see what's happening on the coast and say that's going to impact me somehow, or it doesn't not register and it's just you know about heat waves and drought and different things like that. Yeah, I don't think that there's a, it, it's just not as tangible here. You know, like we're not going to deal with a hurricane anytime soon, I would think. And if we did, I think it'd be too late for us to really have this conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no, no, no Dennis Quaid coming to save you. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, great. One of the best terrible movies, by the way, The Day After Tomorrow. Absolutely. If that's on TV on FX, because that's the only place you can find it, I'll watch it. Absolutely. Um, so it, it's not it's not terribly tangible to the everyday life of somebody in Chicago. You know, we certainly are dealing with the impacts of weather changes and however that you know affects things you know on a day to day basis in the short term or the long term. But it's not it's not overt. It's not direct, which I think is part of the challenge here, right? Like climate change in general is slow moving. Humans are bad at dealing with slow moving. If it's not in your face and directly impacting you, it's sort of like a so what 
or I have other things to deal with. Now, that being said, right, the effects, the effects of climate change do more than just raise, you know, sea levels, as Travis helped us, educated us a little bit on up front, right? Like there are changes to the weather patterns. There are changes to uh, the way in which our farmers can grow food, which I've, you know, sort of listed control of your food supply as a key national security concern. And so, you know, part of what has taken down societies in the past has been changes in the physical environment that makes it impossible for the society to continue. Um, but it's just not tangible for us here in a way. Now, in, in Illinois, one of the big things we're talking about at this point in time is, is um, you know, is energy, energy sources, clean energy jobs, things like that. There's a really strong environmental movement in Illinois that is focusing on, on those types of, of uh, long-term ideas, which are all proactive and positive, but it's not a, you know, it's not a reactionary, what's the impact to my everyday life type of thing, at least not here. Yeah, uh, if, if I wanted to just make some comments on kind of energy and, and climate in the Midwest versus here and sort of draw some connections. I think I think it's totally right. There's there's definitely local impacts of climate change in the Midwest and all across the country. Um, it's not as clear as sea level rise. And I think that's something that um, we have to understand. Um, but the solutions, I think, are very there needs to be lots of local solutions to attack this problem globally. Um, so, for example, you can you can work on offshore wind like you are here in New Jersey um, to try to reduce the amount of CO2 that we put in the atmosphere. But but that's a drop in the bucket compared to what we need to do globally and across the entire country. So solutions need to be happening um, everywhere for us to actually save or, or mitigate or protect some of our really vulnerable places. Um, the other piece is that I think there's economic impacts that might happen. Um, well, don't think. I think there's economic impacts that will happen globally uh, based on coastal and local uh, challenges. So we may see changes in prices of goods because shipping is interrupted, uh, ports are underwater, things like that. Um, and we may see changes in prices of fuel um, or cost of energy based on impacts and challenges in uh, places that are impacted by sea level rise specifically. So it's going to be sort of these secondary secondary impacts that trickle out everywhere from, from local um, extreme impacts in certain places. Yeah, the, the I want to sort of tell a very quick story that is tied to your point about local solutions. And um, a few years back as part of an organization that I'm, that I'm a, a partner of or a member of called the Truman National Security Project, we met uh, with a local unnamed but high up individual sort of running an energy company and you know sort of it was closed door small group and so we got to ask some pretty transparent questions among those talking about like investing in the energy infrastructure and what you could do locally um, and the challenge that came up was this essentially all of these people know these people running these companies know that the energy grid itself has to change and is going to change at some point in time. Uh, but 
unless the government is leading the way on spending to facilitate that, they're not going to make the move first because of the constraints of being a for-profit corporation and those constraints being one, that they want to make money, two, that they're incentivized obviously to maximize profit. Uh, and it's a very similar problem. It's like why broadband is not universal. It's because it's not going to be universal until governments invest. And I say all this um, because I think it's really important to like name this thing for people. You know, Bill Clinton said the era of, gov- of, of big government is over. Here's the reality. The area of being able to solve big problems with small government never really existed. And the challenges we face now cannot be solved without both an activist intentionally investing government structure and a high degree of social trust to enable that reality. And so there is no way forward in meaningful global ways unless the federal government in particular in our country is leading the way and investing the dollars into uh, enabling those solutions. So can I ask a question then? Because Amazon has this like big, we're going to invest in energy and climate mitigation like program. Um, they have a new director that was coming, actually was just recently Governor Murphy in New Jersey's policy director for a while. Um, and like, it's meant to, you know, really, I think, I think it's sort of, Amazon is sort of being held up as like, see, the private sector cares about this and they're going to do something about it. But like, even even if Amazon marshaled a ton of resources towards it, Travis, is that even, is, is that anywhere near enough <laughs> for what we're talking about? Um, short answer, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I, th- I think the, I think the idea that companies, that companies are going to save us on their own is sort of a fantasy. I think they have a role to play and they have a, they, they can help us innovate and help us think about things in new ways. But, but generally, you know, companies will move, they'll move their headquarters, they'll, they'll adapt more nimbly than people living in homes will be able to, I think, um, is my kind of a, opinion on this. And I think um, there, there's a lot of effort to do mitigation for some of these companies, but they're not doing that for free. They're not doing that because it's, it's, um, it's good necessary for society. They're doing it because it, it, works in to help their profits in different ways. Um, you know, running web servers, running cloud servers uh, takes a lot of energy. The way that we are using computing resources, that's a big deal that we're going to have to think about um, how we heat and cool. And um, that's still, we're able to use energy so much more easily than we were able to in the past. So even if we drive our cars less, there's sort of all these hidden hidden energy costs in all of these different places that maybe we didn't think about or even see uh, before and definitely don't see uh, now in our day-to-day. I think that's something we have to think about when we think about, you know, the role that these companies play or don't play or whether they're saying they're going to rescue us or, or, or whether they're looking at their bottom line. Right. At the risk of me sounding like I'm anti-big government, which I am definitely not, um, and with referencing green bonds and all of that, earlier, Travis's is 
correct that they're doing it because it's good business for them. But I get very wary to your question, Brandon, of, okay, Amazon's going to pick these things to invest in. Is that how we want our our country to be run? Is by one company deciding (laughs) what things get an investment? Absolutely not, because it is in their self-interest. Do I want all companies to do things that are environmentally friendly in their self-interest? Absolutely. But I think there's things like FEMA, which I was hard on earlier, is trying to change. And they do have, in some small ways, it could be more where they've got this new building resilient infrastructure communities that they're that they're putting out every year. And like that, that is where it starts, where again, at major scale, we change and, and re-incentivize these things. Yeah. And I don't have any doubt whatsoever that we will eventually get to what is functionally a true clean energy grid in most of the industrialized world first and then in the you know the the developing countries next because you know we're not going to give resources based on equitable frameworks uh, if history is uh if history is a guide but the the challenge is that bp not to pick on bp but like bp will be 100 percent clean energy as soon as bp believes that it can maximize its profitability with 100% clean energy. So the only other actor, if the private sector doesn't have the incentive to act in ways that are necessary for community stakeholders, the only other actor that can is the public sector. That's government. That's us in our collective decision-making process. And so that's the challenge is not that we aren't going to get there is are we going to get there fast enough and at the level of scale necessary to mitigate endless amounts of damage? And the answer is meh, maybe. (laughs) But those pressures do work. BP no longer goes by British Petroleum because they're trying to rebrand. You know, Shell has commercials on TV about all their green energy and wind farms. There are other companies that have oil and gas in the name that have completely changed their names because they're trying to move forward. And it means that it's both in their financial interest and also that these pressures are working. So we need more of that to at the big scale to drive these companies forward. And it, it can't be the reverse. We can't have them dictating what the larger plan is. Honestly, though, I mean, not in, this should be a different topic that we talk about one day, but like my concern with that is that it's just as a term that Anand Giridharadas has used in his book, it's just reputation laundering, right? Like they, they are presenting themselves that way. They are communicating that way. They're making it seem like, you know, all those Exxon commercials about like, we're really trying to figure out how to get to green energy. Is that matching with their actual behavior? Like, are they really trying to get there that fast? You know, are they, or are they just trying to make, you know, make the public, you know, comfortable with still, you know, going to them as an, as an energy provider and not really second guessing it, even though um, they're, they're not doing the things that they are saying to the degree that they're claiming. So I, I think some of that, some of that is real, but I think, I think, Offshore wind in New Jersey is a great example that there there are real incentives and there are real um, business interests for being renewable energy companies. Kind of for the first time um, in I think a, a modern U.S. history, um, we see a real strong incentive to do renewable green energy. Um, 
some of the companies have uh, that are that are investing in New Jersey are 100% renewable and have divested or moved on kind of from their oil and gas. You're seeing this from smaller energy companies, I think. I think some of the larger companies, it will take a while to get there. It's not in, you know, it's not in their interest to total. I think it's both. I think your concern is warranted for some. Um, But as we see some of these other companies be successful in the 100% renewable world, I think you're going to start to see the shift. I think the thing that it points to is that there used to be this thought that we're sort of, um, that we're sort of addicted to oil. Um, And I think in some ways we are, but we're really just addicted to cheap, affordable energy. And so if we can find cheap and affordable energy solutions that aren't oil, I'm encouraged that we'll go for it. Um, I think the challenge is is getting to that cheap and renewable energy source in a in a environmentally friendly way. And like Oren said, fast enough that it's going to matter. I think that's the real challenge. Um, Brandon did mention, as Travis Traps, my husband knows my one true love on Tratanos. <laughs> Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, and, and here's the here's, here's the thing. You know, when when we invaded Iraq, uh, you know, the argument was this is all for the oil. It's all for the oil, and it sounded really hyperbolic. But I do think it's important to recognize, again, from a national security and foreign policy standpoint, just how central. Um, number one, energy sources have been to the core of the security of any country, right? Part of the reason to come to go colonize America was for lumber, because lumber was everything from housing to energy in that period of time. And mm-hmm. so as you think about who is producing and exporting ener- uh, oil, <clears throat> you also need to just have an honest conversation about the role that that product plays in the stability of that government and that potential region and the way the relationships are interconnected. America produces a lot of oil. We export and leverage a lot of oil. There is a government investment built around stability for the local and international system set up in and around it. So it's, it's, it, it ultimately is going to come from not just decision making at the uh, decision making at the, the, you know, the local or business level in terms of what can be uh, productive and profitable, but it is going to require governments to make changes on this. Uh, you could understand if you're a if you're a Middle Eastern country like the Saudis and your entire economy is built around oil as one thing is like the core to everything. If we shut off the pumps tomorrow, that creates a real problem, and they're not going to peacefully or quietly accept that. So, you know, this isn't to make any set of excuses. It's to underlie sort of the macro challenges and dynamics. And this is the worry: is will we get there too late because of the inertia that those realities create? I think I think this is kind of a slightly different topic. Well, it's the same topic, but it's a, a little bit of a shift. I think one thing that's been encouraging to me um, throughout throughout, but kind of because of COVID, um, is there was so, there's sort of this myth or um, this cynicism that he, that I had that I've had that you know we can't make 
big changes and behavioral changes in people to deal with climate that we've had, you know, I've felt that way for most of my adult life that we're just not going to be able to make those big behavioral changes um, from the way we drive to the products we use. Um, and I think I've been very encouraged uh, with, you know, lots of holdouts on, on some COVID issues, but how quickly we can make big behavioral and societal changes. Um, and if we remind ourselves of that on a regular basis and think about climate as a challenge, just as difficult, if not more difficult than, than COVID, then I, th I think we maybe can start to believe um, that we can make those changes um, and, and mitigate in some of these different ways, whether it's just using less energy or I think we're more comfortable changing our lives than maybe we thought we would be. Because so many of our episodes have ended on a diff difficult and depressing down note, we should end <laughs> this one on that because that was very well stated. And I agree with you. And I, I, I do feel, um, even though all of the things that we're going through right now are incredibly challenging and difficult for a lot of folks, um, it is sort of pointing the way towards what's possible, uh, what we got to do, what we, what we can do when we absolutely have to do it, at least in some parts of the country. Um, New Jersey being a good one, maybe a good example. And so um, any, unless there's any other thing that anybody wants to say of like a really critical or important point on this topic. You, you don't have to use this as a closer. You can cut it if you want. But I think, I think from the weather and climate side, I, we know more than we ever have in the past. We have some of the most advanced and best tools to to literally predict the future, which is incredible um, on some of these issues. Uh, we have some of the best ways to observe the weather and climate um, and protect people by giving forecasts that are accurate than, than we've ever had. Um, so I think there's a lot of hope in our capabilities and I think our, our policies and our investment um, should use that best information um, for the next you know, 100 years. I think um, I think it's a really exciting time to merge those things together, to merge science and politics together and try to come up with the best um, solutions we can. What Travis didn't share is that often in the in the past, some of these predictions had been done without the ocean. And a big part of his job is sending little underwater robots that look like yellow submarine planes into the hurricanes storm chaser style where they collect data every two seconds and, and it sends it back so that they can make those better predictions and we actually know what we're doing and also that he's a real champ about trying to engage with uh, federal and state politicians to make policy there you go that's my nice thing i've said <laughs> about you for the next month <laughs> uh, great thank you um well, that was a great convo. Thank you. We will now move on to what is rapidly becoming my favorite part of all of this is, and we actually talked not that long ago, so I'm interested to hear the answers here, but what is your new favorite thing since we last spoke? Travis will give you a little bit to think on that, but uh, Katie, you go first this time. What's your new favorite thing? Woof. My new favorite thing is. I remember the last time you said some like real like Norman Mailer like Americana like oh people chasing after the ice cream truck. I need more tangible things. 
I said adult specifically. It was really a beautiful <laughs> imagery. And I think before that, I talked about cats and TikTok. So I really got to balance did. that out. So <laughs> I, I think this, and this is true, is uh, um, my current COVID escapism is living my Jane Austen fantasies, uh, endlessly perusing Victorian homes on the internet. Ooh, what locations? Anywhere. Anywhere, she says. Specifically renovations of people. <laughs> That's nice. I like that. Mm-hmm. Travis, do you have a favorite thing in mind? Oh, man. Um, my most recent new favorite thing has been um, there is an electric boat that I can rent in Jersey City and take out uh, and do Statue of Liberty tours and drive myself. Um, and it's one of the first, not first, but it's one of the first like kind of commercialized electric boats out there. That's really exciting. Um, I don't know. It kind of fits into this conversation of just like, we can do things a little bit differently and, um, they're a lot cheaper (laughs) and, and more fun sometimes. So, uh, being a man of the seas is my all time and new favorite thing. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of this and also its main beneficiary because Captain Travis needs to take somebody out and That's right. that person is thus far always me. So you might have like a little picnic basket full of some cheese oh, yeah. and some grapes yeah. and some rosé just sit out there looking at the Statue of Liberty, which mind you is where, Katie? New Jersey. Thank and you very Ellis much. Ellis Island literally connected to New Jersey. That's right. We will be insufferable forever. Uh, Orin, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to go last because I, I, I go last all the time and we should switch it up. But uh, I, I would like to say my new favorite thing is something else, but I know I won't get away with it. I know you all know what my new favorite thing is. I can't, I can't lie here. <laughs> it's a space sim game called Elite Dangerous. It is a one-to-one scale recreation of the Milky Way galaxy in which you can pilot a spaceship and you can either be as calm and boring as just, you know, shipping some some materials from space station to space station and making some money, or you can be in combat. And I have gone whole hog on it and I bought a joystick and a throttle and some pedals so I can fly around the, the universe like a crazy person. And that's what it is. And the that's the second time my favorite thing. Information. That is, <laughs> that's new information that takes us to a whole other level. I, I bought it because Microsoft Flight Simulator is coming out, which is the new version for the first time in like 12 years. And like it uses real like Google or rather Bing Maps data of the Earth. So you can like literally like fly over your house if you want to. So I bought it for that. And I was like, let me just try these out with a game that I already had and never really played. And now is I'm... that the less nerdy reason that you bought it? It's equally nerdy. I'm not trying to hide anything here. It is what it is. Okay. I'm just saying this is the second time I've said something about a video game. Yes, I play a lot of games, but it's a lot of fun. And there's, again, a select few people out there who are doing the Leo DiCaprio point at me right now being like, yes, that thing. So there it is. Oren, please save me from myself. (laughs) What a nerd. You are my new favorite thing, Brandon. I just, you know, the thing, <laughs> the things you. you say and the texts you write. 
and the compounding of you know it's like it's if nerd if nerd was raised to the fourth power what you've accomplished in the last 48 hours would have been there and i don't think you should you should uh, second guess for one second the long-term impact of that reality so uh look i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take us back to something old. So there's this thing which used to happen in America called sports, mm. where like people who were good with their hands or fast or strong would compete against each other in these I'm competitions. Intrigued. Yes, and and usually just you know for fun. But if you're really good, you could like get paid for it, and it could distract the masses and like make us feel like our terrible, awful, stressful lives are like you know, not terrible, awful, stressful for the two hours that said sport, I believe Mitt Romney calls it sport, is being played. And I would like to let you all know that the NBA, which is the National Basketball Association, uh, people who are supposed to shut up and dribble, as far as I'm I'm told based on, uh, I, th- I think, Ann Coulter and, and Fox, um, they're throwing the ball in the hoop again in a competitive way. And the NBA playoffs are back, baby. Yeah, they are. No Chicago Bulls, no New York Knicks, but I'm not going to talk about the Nets, but uh, basketball is back and it's a lot of fun. And I agree well, with my, you. My solution for that is to rewatch The Last Dance once a week. Uh, That's fair. And, and, and re-celebrate every, every moment. That's fair. That's fair. I could have gone with another favorite thing. I'll save that for next time. It's By the way, was, it, was that the wonkiest explanation of a very simple thing that, that the NBA playoffs are here? <laughs> I know we got a Listen. lot of nerds listening, so I just need to explain what sport is. They also, know video how, games. how many sports leagues have like really failed about like keeping COVID under wraps, and like you got like entire baseball teams that have like not been able to play their games for a week because they had an outbreak, or you know, only basketball and the NHL so far have been able to keep it going because they got the little bubble. My, my hometown Cardinals really screwed that up. It's like, why do you even have to touch somebody in, in baseball? How could you, like, it seems like this would have been easy enough to avoid. I, I take back everything hopeful I said earlier about behavioral change. We're <laughs> <laughs> screwed. Oh, man. There you go. All that conversation, all for not. <laughs> Anyways, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate you all. Please uh, hit us up on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Uh, give, leave us a review if you'd be so kind. Uh, five stars is best. And then also uh, we have a little Twitter handle right now, at WHP Podcast. Facebook page coming. Instagram page coming. Waiting on a couple of things for that. Mainly some, uh, some new logos and uh graphics branding fun times things but uh please do that thank you again thank you all for this lovely conversation and we will see you next time